HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm, a sustainable pasture-based dairy farm. For more information, visit ConsiderBardwellFarm.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. When someone asks, would you like hot sauce with that? Did you know that you were being offered an ancient food? Hmm, when was it invented, and where did those peppers come from? We'll find out all about it today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And it seems that in recent years, we've become obsessed with hot sauces and the hottest peppers we can find. And also, it seems that hot sauce is as ubiquitous on the table as ketchup. And each of these items are made from what we call New World foods, chilies, tomatoes. And there's so many other of the the New World foods like that that have really changed the cuisines around the world. Harissa, piripiri, sambal, sriracha, no matter what you call it, every time we reach for the hot sauce, there is for sure a story of botanical evolution and development of the peppers that are within the bottle. So to find out more about these stories, I went to the source, the Pope of Peppers, as he is called by some, Dave DeWitt. Dave is a culinary, a culinary historian and a, an author, quite an author, prolific author, um, who has written more than 30 books and started two magazines all about hots, hot foods, hot peppers and spices. But he's branched out as well in food history and micro-farming. Some of the books that Dave has written are Fiery Cuisine, The Whole Chili Pepper Book, The Hot Sauce Bible, Chili Pepper Encyclopedia, The Spicy Food Lover's Bible, Habanero Cookbook, and The Complete Chili Pepper Book. You get the point? He's written a lot of books about hot and spicy food. And one of the books that I have found particularly interesting, one of his more recent books, he wrote Da Vinci's Kitchen, which was more on branching out into other foods and how they developed international cuisines. And 
um, in 2014, a book that won the IACP Award for Culinary History, is his book, Precious Cargo, How Foods from the Americas Changed the World. Uh, that I have found extremely interesting, and that led me to do this show. And Dave, welcome. He's joining me today on the line from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hi, Linda. Of course, New Mexico. Where else? He's a pepper guy. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, which was first, your love of peppers or living in New Mexico? Uh, they were simultaneous. What happened was uh, I came out to New Mexico on a vacation in July of 1974 and moved here in November. <laughs> I just decided to change my my style. I'd never been west of the Mississippi before in my life. And I found New Mexico to be a completely intriguing place. Uh, and so I decided to start my freelance writing career and uh, just have a new life in, uh, in the west. Wow. So... Uh, I've been here ever since, and I started writing about, you know, New Mexico food and travel, and you can't really write about New Mexico food without writing about chili peppers, since they're so dominant in our cuisine here. Absolutely. Well, what I, what I have failed to mention is that you've, of course, had other lives as well. You were a radio announcer, radio produ- and TV producer and announcer. Uh, you also, well, in, in addition to the books... Um, the Complete Chili Pepper book is very interesting. You co-authored that with Dr. Boslin, a chili pepper breeder from New right. Mexico State, right? And also you you made the, for, with, along with um, New Mexico Univers- State University Media Arts Department, the first video documentary on chili peppers. Heat up your life? Yes, it's a three-part documentary, nearly three hours long, and we shot in locations in Jamaica and Mexico and New Mexico and uh, Texas, and we had a great time doing that. And we tried to document how chili peppers have affected people's lives in more ways than just food, but particularly in food. And uh, New Mexico was at one time the largest producer of chili peppers. We've been eclipsed a little bit by uh, California now, hmm. but uh, we still grow a lot of chili peppers in New Mexico. Mexico, and of course, um, because of NAFTA and so forth, the New Mexican varieties are also grown um, in Mexico, specifically in Chihuahua. So we have a lot of imported uh, chilies, but they're all the same variety, so you wouldn't notice any change in flavor or anything like that. Well, and right near you, don't they have that the annual uh, jalapeno roasting festival? Well, they have they have the chili roasting festivals uh, uh, in a lot of different places now. Mostly New Mexico chilies rather than jalapenos. They don't jalapenos don't really need to be roasted and peeled. But uh, the New Mexico varieties have a very tough skin, and the importance of removing that skin before you try to eat them, especially if you're going to say stuff them, uh, it's it'd be very unpalatable to have that tough skin on. So we roast them in cylindrical drums and then remove the skins and uh, it makes for a, m- a much better tasting uh, uh, chili because of the, the roasting, of course, caramelizes the, the sugars and so forth like that and makes them extremely uh, tasty. And then you can chop them up, make green, green chili stew or make an enchilada sauce or whatever. And we also let the chilies turn red and harvest them. So we have either red or green, which is our 
state question, uh, red or green. Huh. We have to have a state question. Of course, we have two state vegetables, neither of which is a vegetable. Uh, we have chili peppers, they're fruits, uh, and we have pinot beans, and of course, they're legumes. So the the wise legislature uh, <laughs> made us have two state vegetables, and neither one is a vegetable. So go figure. <laughs> well, you know, that's your your pulling the wool over the population's eyes <laughs> or pulling the pepper over their eyes. Um, you know, you also um, are the founding producer of the Fiery Foods and Barbecue Show, which is a huge trade show that you've done for, what, over 25 years now? Well, yes, we're in our 29th year now. That'll be um, next uh, March. Uh, I think it's four, five, six. I have to look it up. <laughs> I can't remember from year to year after doing it for 28 uh, years. And it's the largest trade show and consumer show related to chili peppers and hot and spicy foods. I'm talking about now a trade show inside. I'm not talking about large festivals um, where chilies are just an excuse to party. Uh, I'm, t- I'm talking about a serious trade show. Uh, and we don't have, you know, face painting and uh, chili eating contests or anything like that. This is this is business, and uh, the, uh, the the wholesale part of it is is of course uh, the manufacturers selling in bulk to uh, places like um, Trader Joe's and and Whole Foods and uh, different supermarkets and and other smaller retail operations. And then we are open to the general public, and and people want to come and taste the new products, and of course buy them because not every product is available in every city, as you probably know. And so they get a lot of new stuff. Um, they're very uh, interested in trying that. And it brings out, you know, anywhere between fifteen and 20,000 people, depending on the weather, depending on right. what other things are going on and so forth. So kind of like, the fa- been, like the fancy food show of peppers, right? <laughs> well, it is. Uh, it's not nearly as large as the fancy food show. Uh, but in terms of chili peppers, it's pretty diverse. We divide uh, the hot and spicy foods into about 60 plus different categories, um, and the, the largest portion of that being snack foods in the sense of the largest number, because if you count chips differently from, say, popcorn, uh, then you get an uh, enormous number of snack foods, which now have chili peppers in them. The jerky would be a perfect uh, example of um, a, kind, a type of uh, you know, snack food that did not have chili peppers until, oh, maybe 20 years ago or something like that. Mm. Ketchup being another one, that's more of a condiment, but there's probably 20-some hot and spicy ketchups. When when uh, the ketchup manufacturers noticed that people were putting hot sauce into their ketchup, and why bother if you can make a hot and spicy ketchup that that's will, right. <laughs> you know, automatically spice up your hamburger or whatever. So uh, we, we, we love these hot and spicy products, and we also have a contest that it's in its 20th year called the Scovie Awards, named after Wilbur Scoville, who developed the first uh, chili pepper heat scale. And uh, we have, you know, about 800 to 1,000 products from around the world entered into this contest that has 60 food categories anyway. So that's a big deal uh, as well. And it just shows the, the dimension of hot and spicy foods and how much they are um, influencing our lives and, and people 
turning people into chili heads, if you want to view it that way. This is not to say that people who like hot and spicy eat hot and spicy every single meal of the day. I do not. Um, I like all kinds of full-flavored foods. I like Italian cuisine in particular. And so uh, now Italian cuisine is getting spiced up. Going That's to Italy right. now, you can get uh, all kinds of, of spiced up Italian food. So, That's right. Uh, it's going everywhere. People don't think of France being hot and spicy, but they have an Espelette pepper festival every year in the southern part of France where they grow you know, these protected uh, varieties of, of peppers. And it goes on and on and on, as, as uh, you saw probably in my book, Precious Cargo. And, and countries all over the world are growing New World crops uh, very, very successfully. And, and New World crops such as potatoes and sweet potatoes have, have prevented famine in certain areas in certain parts of history. And that uh, is, is good for uh, everybody. Uh, as, as people find out, uh, oh my gosh, uh, you know, vanilla is a uh, American food, uh, chocolate's an American food. It goes on and on. Right. Uh, potatoes, tomatoes, uh, the whole uh, solanaceous plants are mostly from uh, you know the New the World. Americas, Speaking right. about North and South and Central America. Right. Well, you mentioned um, other countries growing some of these foods that were you know originally grown in the Americas. Chili peppers, of course, being one of them, and. The Wall Street Journal recently had an article about, um, oh, I guess it was about Wilbur Scoville and talking about the, you know, the graph and the in the the heat scale, and also mentioned that the U.S. production of chili peppers has fallen in recent years, but the imports have climbed from about two hundred thousand pounds to almost two million pounds of peppers every year that we're importing from other countries. That's amazing. That's a lot well, of pepper. Well, we're importing the dried chilies a lot from India, mm. um, especially the cayenne varieties, and then the largest producer of fresh chilies is China. Uh, also, China is the largest producer of, of fresh tomatoes uh, in the world now, and I think you can see they just have a lot of people growing stuff. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, and uh, back to the Scoville, um, I'm sure most people are familiar with um, that being a heat uh, scale, but maybe not. That d- describe the the heat scale, the Scoville units to us from. Okay, well, the original one, uh, Wilbur Scoville, he he worked for Park Davis, the pharmaceutical company, and they were manufacturing a topical cream called Heat H E E T, and that was for arthritis pain and and that sort of thing. And the big problem with making that particular cream was that you didn't know how how hot the chilies were. So, um, I mean, chilies when they're you know very very hot have a lot of capsaicin in them can cause, uh, uh, you know, burning on the skin and so forth, and even blistering. And then, of course, if, if you have a very, uh, if a cream doesn't have very much of that in it, it's not going to be effective. So he tried to figure out a way and succeeded in figuring out a way to at least get a ballpark estimate of the heat of a chili pepper. And he did that by dilution. In other words, if he had to dilute um, the, the pepper 100 to 1, then it had a heat scale of 100. If 1,000 to 1, it had a heat scale of 1,000 Scoville heat units uh, named after himself. And uh, so uh, this was a human taste test, so there's going to be all kinds of errors in this because everybody has a different tolerance for the the heat level, but still it was a start. And now, of course, uh, we use scientific methods. Uh, uh, Chromatography is is the main way where they find the amount of capsaicin in parts per million, and then they do still convert it into Scoville heat scale because that's what the food industry uses to measure the heat. And so um, it's done, of course, scientifically now, uh, but 
still, uh, Scoville made a it was it was breakthrough science in 1912. This kind of thing was was breakthrough technology. Absolutely, and he, and he did it, and we should be uh, happy for him. And uh, you know, the uh, uh, nobody knows very much about Wilbur Scoville. I I tracked it down and wrote a professional. Uh, short biography, which is posted on uh, my website, fieryfoodcentral.com. And uh, it was interesting because we know nothing about his personal life other than he was married and had a couple of kids. But we don't know, nothing was ever written that I can find about his personal life. But uh, his professional life, he was very successful. Um, And I don't think he uh, believed that uh, he would be famous for his Scoville organoleptic test. That means tasting, by the way, organoleptic, just a scientific word meaning tasting. But uh, uh, we, uh, we revere him, uh, probably the first chili-head geek who ever lived. <laughs> well, in 1912, you're absolutely right. I mean, you couldn't even find many bottles of hot sauce on the shelf in 1912. So let's talk about that. What, let's talk about the early history of peppers, of chilies, and, and, and chili so- hot sauces. Where did it all start? It all started probably um, in uh, the greater Amazon basin. Uh, Chili peppers uh, are very, very old crops, uh, not only wild, uh, but very old domesticated crops, too. And uh, scientists now believe, after uh, archaeological discoveries, that uh, chili peppers were first uh, used as tolerated weeds. In other words, they grew around and people uh, didn't cultivate them, but they, they picked the pods and used them, uh, probably in hot sauces. And the reason we say they probably used in hot sauces, they found residues of chili peppers in pots dating back a couple of thousand years. So, and this, and they weren't not uh, chilies and chocolate. We hear a lot about the Aztecs and chilies and chocolate. That is that is true. And they found, of course, pots that have both of them in there. But it wasn't known until later on that uh, uh, they were also just used as a condiment. And uh, there's nothing else with the, with the chilies that they found. It's just chili remnants. So the, the primitive hot sauces of the Indians of, of say, the Amazon Basin were just crushed up chili peppers mixed with probably water. Hmm. They didn't have much else. There was no um, oil, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, to mix them with to, uh, to make a, like a dressing or, or something like that. So it was, it was probably just chilies and water. And they were used to um, spice up bland root crops like manioc, uh, which was a, a big crop, of course, which is spread around the world like other New World crops. Mm-hmm. And so that's so bland, and potatoes also in, in Peru uh, were so bland that they needed something. They needed something to make them flavorful, and chilies were there and they're and available. And of course, um, the dawn of agriculture, when people started uh, uh, actually growing things purposely rather than harvesting them in the wild, uh, they began became farmers instead of gatherers. I'm sure there was still some gathering going on, but there was an an eruption um, about 400 A.D. um, in in the little village near Sarin, and a volcano covered that village uh, completely in ash. It's sort of the American Pompeii. And when they dug through the ash, they found chili fields, (laughs) that they actually had chili fields, and they found uh, pots that had chili seeds next to pots uh, that had uh, chocolate pods in them. So the association with chilies and chocolate 
side by side on the shelf, so to speak, um, uh, was a further clue. And it also proved that the stories that the um, Spanish explorers told about Chile's were probably true. Uh, because when they first came to the, the New World in the 1600s, the uh, early 1600s, um, they found and described the Chile's in the markets in Tenochtitlan, which is now Mexico City, um, and they described the smoked chilies, the long chilies, uh, the uh, yellow chilies, and all these that were used for specific foods. And so they, you know, these early Indians, I'm saying Indians, Native Americans or whatever in the uh, uh, in Mexico in particular, uh, had already developed all these varieties, some of which we know today, like, for example, smoked chilies, uh, chipotles, we call them now, they were described as red, elongated pods that were put on gr- uh, like, like primitive grills uh, and smoked until they were dried. So that you know, has lived on for a long time. We're talking about four or five hundred years that uh, we know that these particular chilies um, were around. Right. But uh, I, I found that when I when I trace the history of these foods going around the world, almost the first thing you find in every cuisine is some sort of hot sauce. And the hot sauces vary enormously from country to country because they include the spices and herbs that are native to those particular places. So, Right. Well, we're going to talk more about some of those spices um, when we come back from a break. But what I wanted to make clear was that as far as uh, cultivation of the peppers, so you would place that about when 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 did they actually cultivate these? You mentioned um, that they were wild to you know two thousand years ago. I, I think it was about two thousand years ago. Some people say five thousand years ago, based on some seeds that were found in in archaeological digs. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, there's a big debate. Nobody really knows for sure. So certainly, when the Spanish conquerors came in the 16th century, they it was a well-established, yes, cultivated absolutely. crop. Okay, um, and a very important crop, obviously, to their diet, as you've as you've told us. So when we come back after a short break, we're going to talk about some of these other cuisines and their sauces. So stay tuned. Today's program is brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm. Consider Bardwell Farm is a sustainable pasture-based dairy farm, making award-winning raw cow and goat's milk cheeses in a not-too-far corner of Vermont. For Consider Bardwell, sustainability means caring for the land, raising their animals well, reducing waste, and helping their community, all in the name of happy animals and people and delicious cheeses. Consider Bardwell Farm is proud to support Heritage Radio Network as part of their food and farming community and a proud sponsor of all good conversations had over a great cheese. Find them at your local cheese counter, at New York City Green Markets, and online at considerbardwellfarm.com. Hi, we're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm talking with Dave DeWitt, the Pope of Peppers, all about the history of chili peppers and hot sauces. So you were talking, Dave, about um, so many of these other other cuisines around the world that adopted chilies into their into their diet, into their cuisines, and of course, everyone has a hot sauce, right? 
I you mean, know they all do. And uh, I wrote a book uh, a few years ago with uh, with my my friend Chuck Evans, who has a hot sauce company. And uh, as we trace the uh, uh, the spread of hot sauces uh, around the world, we 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 found you know such varying kinds of hot sauces. Like for example, the Katjang in Indonesia. It's a peanut chili sauce, and the number of hot sauces in Africa is is astounding. Uh, we know that, for example, uh, chili peppers conquered a country, that would be Hungary, and another country, that would be India. But in the case of Africa, chili peppers conquered an entire continent. Um, Africa is just unbelievable. Um, And, of course, Malaysia and Indonesia are also unbelievable. I I went to Johor Bahru in Indonesia and went to a supermarket, and it, it looked exactly like an American supermarket. They had the wide aisles and the, you know, the, the high shelving and all that kind of stuff. Three entire aisles filled with nothing but hot sauces and chili paste. Uh, it was mind-boggling to wow. see that. I mean, how, wow. how does anybody make a decision? Right. <laughs> we, we, we think of sriracha and, and we think, oh, that's the Asian sauce of, of choice. But when you, when you look at all the variety, uh, it was you know, unbelievable. And the, uh, uh, I, I found uh, everywhere I, it seems like I go in the world, you can find uh, their version of a hot sauce or their version of, of some, something hot and spicy that people are putting on, on their food. And it's the peri-peri pepper in South Africa, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little Pekin-type uh, chili related to Tabasco. And uh, I made the mistake of going to a Nando's chicken restaurant and ordering. They, the server asked me, do you want a mild, medium, or hot? And, of course, I said hot. And it was so hot I couldn't even eat it. <laughs> and that's you we're talking about. Well, everybody thinks I'm, I can eat all this super hot stuff and so forth. But I'm just like anybody else. I, I, I like my food medium hot, and that's it. I can't take the, the super hot stuff. And so, embarrassed, I had to send it back. Mm. But I praised him, saying, boy, you guys know how to make it hot. Uh, and, you know, this is this is a restaurant chain devoted to hot and spicy chicken that has 800 locations, uh, mostly in Asia and Africa. So it's, uh, you know, mind-boggling to me how... Uh, how far the hot and spicy movement has spread around the world, and we—it starts with hot sauces, but then there's an entire sophisticated uh, level of, of foods. Um, for example, in Thailand, uh, uh, the number of dishes that are hot and spicy is almost uncountable. Hmm. Uh, in India, uh, I found that they were uh, the restaurants and so forth were were seeing our faces and hearing our accents and knowing we were Americans. Actually, we were Americans with a bunch of Brits on a culinary tour, and they deliberately made the food as mild as they possibly could. And we're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, we came to India to eat hot and spicy. Could you give us some authentic food? And they finally got the the message that we could take the the hot stuff, but of course they were being nice. They didn't want to burn us out. And we find that uh, from Trinidad to South Africa to India to everywhere, when they realize we're Americans, they think, oh, we can't feed them this. They're going to really have trouble with it. But you'll find that's true even in America. When you go into an oh, ethnic restaurant, oh, yeah. you know. Uh, it happens uh, when, when say, uh, people from the east come to Santa Fe or Albuquerque and so forth like that, and they're, tend to, they're, they're directed toward the milder, uh, the foods, mm-hmm. just in case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you well, can always spice something up, but it's very difficult to take the heat out of something. Right. So, well, sometimes the, the hot sauces and the spice mixtures 
I have the same name, I've, I've noticed as well. And I know there was this young Ethiopian cook, and she said, before you can even think of assembling any other ingredients, you have to have your beriberi, because that is your berberi, because that is the most important ingredient in any Ethiopian dish. And so right. she was obviously referring to the, the spice mixture and, and the peppers and um, not a sauce necessarily. But yet you can go in other places and it'll be a sauce, right? Yes. <laughs> and, and, of course, uh, the, the, the definition of sauce is quite broad. Anything from a thick paste to a, um, a really runny uh, liquid uh, still falls into the category of hot sauce. So a salsa is a hot sauce in the sense of, you know, hot sauce in the most generic, generic term. Right. Well, let's, we can't talk about hot sauces without talking about the history of Tabasco and the McElhaney family. Let, can, you, can we go into that just a little bit and sort of uh, talk about the, the history and the myth of who invented it? <laughs> Well, uh, Tabasco was the first, not not the only American hot sauce, but the first uh, American hot sauce to hit it big. Mm -hmm. And that uh, happened mostly through food service, uh, believe it or not. And, uh, of course, there were retailers of uh, Tabasco sauce, but the McElhenney's were very, very smart. They knew if they had a bottle of Tabasco sauce uh, on every restaurant table in the United States, um, they would make a lot of money. And that's, that's you know, what happened. And if you go to virtually any place in the world and ask for hot sauce, Tabasco was going to make its appearance. Mm -hmm. And Tabasco was an extremely simple uh, sauce to make. It's got water. It's got Tabasco chilies. It's got salt. And that's it. Hmm. <laughs> and it uh, has vinegar, of course, the vinegar being the base of it. But right. uh, vinegar is just, you know, more water with flavoring. And so uh, this is a very easy sauce to make. It used to be cured for three years in oaken barrels. I doubt that that's true any longer. I think it is aged, but uh, there's not that many oaken barrels around. They were whiskey barrels that they were being aged. And I've seen that process, and it still happens. I'm not sure it happens with every bottle uh, of Tabasco any longer. Um, I, I don't really know, but it became uh, so dominant that we've actually discovered the oldest bottle of um, hot sauce, Tabasco sauce uh, that anybody's found is more than, I think it's about 130 years old, and it came from a, a bar in Nevada, and it was all in pieces, and they put it back together and, and found the, the Tabasco stamp on the bottom of the, of the bottle. Uh, it's sort of interesting from a historical standpoint that there were people um, taking shots of hot sauce along with shots of their whiskey. Yeah. So when did the company, do you know, do you know exactly when I, I had that history amongst my notes at one point, but the um, the Tabasco company started the McElhaney family. Uh, it was right after the Civil War, uh -huh. so it was about 1866 to 1868, something like that. Huh. Um, I don't exactly know when they went to full uh, full term production, but that was the earliest that I've I've, I've seen the re the reports of it um, in newspapers and so forth from Louisiana. Interesting. And then where did they they ultimately set up in Texas? I think didn't they? Well. Uh, uh, they're distributed everywhere, but but their their primary manufacturing f uh, facility is still uh, Avery Island in Louisiana. Oh, interesting! Because yeah, that it yeah. says it it says it on the bottle, so I just wanted to make sure that that well, was they were I, telling I, the I truth. Think it, it may be made in other places now. I, I'm not sure, but uh, you know. Uh, uh, Texas was famous for its paste picante sauce, uh, which is now manufactured by Campbell's Soup. 
Oh, uh-huh. Well, um, I mean, there are so many brands. You talk about three aisles in the supermarket in, uh, in Indonesia. But, I mean, even here you can go into um, some of the um, ethnic grocery stores and just find, you know, shelves, complete shelves and like half an aisle devoted to hot sauces. It's, it's pretty amazing. It is. What do you, to what do you attribute this rise in popularity? Anything well, in particular? It's, um, it, it's this uh, thing that happens to people who get accustomed to hot and spicy food. And I've never heard anybody in my entire life say, oh, I used to eat hot and spicy, but now I'm back to bland. <laughs> they, they just It doesn't go in that direction. It goes the opposite direction. People like it. They want to eat it. They, they find the heat level that satisfies them, they want to stick with that heat level, and they like certain kinds of foods. This is not to say they dump hot sauce on on their uh, breakfast cereal in the morning or put it in their coffee, but they might like to have huevos rancheros in the morning, uh, spicy eggs, uh, for example. They might want to, to, to mix a hot sauce into their scrambled eggs too, because the eggs are bland. And I'm not saying that's the only thing that, that, that they would use, but it's very common and very easy and very inexpensive uh, to do this. And now we're seeing a wider variety of sauces, like the sriracha sauce coming on, and the Cholula from Mexico, which is an excellent oh, sauce for, for restaurants and so forth. Yeah. Um, and let's see, I want to I want to return to the you know the um, some of the other international cuisines that really have adopted the hot sauces and the chilies as as you know they're a primary not a primary ingredient but as a main ingredient for a lot of their um, their dishes and I'm thinking of um, the Chinese I mean uh, they have their dalban sauce and and so many other you know garlic and chili sauces they're cooking well certain regions. Um, southern regions have um, are, are people say, oh, I don't want to eat that kind of food. It's too hot and spicy. <laughs> well, um, uh, there's it's just a, a taste level, and, and you know people associate this with taste buds, but taste buds they just register um, uh, uh, you know the sour, sweet, uh, bitter. Uh, uh, umami and and those kinds of uh, senses, but uh, we have also capsaicin receptors in our mouth and tongue that we co-evolved with uh, chili peppers, and that's why capsaicin affects us. Um, and and so uh, the level of our liking of hot and spicy has to do with genetics. It has to do with how many capsaicin receptors. If we have a whole bunch of them, then we can't take anything hot. If we have fewer of them, then we can take uh, even super hot chilies. For some people, can can do that. So that's what's driving this whole liking of hot and spicy. And people can adapt a little bit. Yeah. Well, and um, curries, you had mentioned in um, Precious Cargo, you talked about curries and the and how, of course, curry spread. That's a, that's a whole other story, and that's a whole other show <laughs> about curries. But as you had mentioned, the further east you go, the hotter the curry becomes. Right. And and that's that's just... Um, when you get into far India, just uh, tell me a little bit why, what, what in particular. Well, the uh, the butchalokia, the super hot chili, um, uh, was was grown in Nagaland after being imported uh, from the Caribbean because all the super hot chilies developed in Trinidad through a mutation that happened um, to chilies that were being grown there uh, already, and and we tracked how um, that that particular pepper got there, and so. 
the people who are making curries um, in in Nagaland, they're about oh probably ten times to twenty times hotter than the usual curries you would find in the in the rest of India because they're using these these super hot uh, chilies and they have adapted uh, somehow to um, actually being able to eat these things and find find it palatable when most people it would be too hot and they could not even get through a you know a teaspoon of it. Right. So I, I guess developing a sauce is a nice way to tighter the use of the of the hot chili. Right. You could get a, a little drop or two rather yes, than right. eating a half of a half of pepper. But then we you mentioned earlier in the show um, Hungary and paprika. Talk a little bit about that because you don't see bottles of paprika sauce. No, and, you don't. And it's, it's not it's hot a, and spicy. It's a dried powder, but when, when you're making um, chicken paprikash and so forth like that, you use um, the the uh, the powder, the paprika, as a, as a powder, but uh, it becomes a sauce <laughs> in the mixture. So when, when you see the finished dish, it looks like a sauce has been put on it, when really it's the juice uh, from the chicken and water and the other flavorings that, that would go into chicken paprikash uh, that make it that way. And, and you know, in the United States, um, uh, paprika is any non-pungent red chili powder. Um, I'm saying chili or pepper powder, if you mm-hmm. want to put it that way. And uh, that's not true in Hungary. There's 22 different kinds of paprikas in Hungary, uh, ranging from blisteringly hot to no heat whatsoever. And they use these in different foods uh, for different effects and so forth. So what we know of paprika is completely different um, uh, in Hungary with a, a variety of heat scales and, and heat levels. Um, and, of course, it's undoubtedly the national spice of Hungary, uh, but it really um, uh, is, is part of their in, entire cuisine. And that's what I mentioned, that there's an example of chili peppers taking over a country, uh, and in Africa, it, it's taken over a continent, literally every single country in Africa, and there's 100, 105 of them or something, uh, is hot and spicy cuisine. Mm-hmm. And as far as a, a sauce, as far as table sauce, how customary or or even um, prevalent is in some of these African, throughout Africa, um, I mean, I think of harissa, well, you would use it in in making the dish, but not necessarily... Well, yeah, that's not true. There's a bowl. You can have a bowl of it on the table. Yeah. But how, you know, how prevalent is the use of, of a, a pepper sauce, a chili sauce on the table? Um, you know, most, most of these places, uh, they have some commercial uh, hot sauces, uh, but uh, a lot of times they're just homemade or restaurant-made or whatever and placed on the, on the table with a little spoon for you, for you to use. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the... Uh, you find both in the United States, but um, you know the hot su- bottled hot sauces are are more common. But in in New Mexico, um, you you can be served um, you know a red chili sauce or a green chili sauce on the side to add as you like uh, to your particular food. Like you can have enchiladas and with a side of red chili to put over them to the degree that you want to spice it up, and that's a uh, a nice thing to have. Uh, the uh, there's all kinds of hot sauces in England now, um, and in the Sainsbury stores and all that, you'll find it just like going to a Safeway here in the United States uh, with the, the different kinds of, and a lot of those are curry-related, um, of course, because there's, what, 12,000 curry restaurants in the U.K., something like that now? <laughs> I'm <laughs> right. not kidding. No, no, I know. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, okay, so as we 
wrap up the show here, dare I ask what your favorite hot sauce is? Well, um, uh, my favorite bottled hot sauce is called Trinidad pepper sauce, and it's made with herbs specific to the island of Trinidad. Not to say they don't grow someplace else, but they're grown specifically for the purposes of making sauce. Um, and these are succulent um, uh, plants uh, that are called thyme, but they're really not thyme. Um, and uh, uh, the sauce is manufactured, I think, in New Jersey or, or someplace on the East Coast uh, using uh, mash and other ingredients that are, that are produced in, in Trinidad. And since I've been to Trinidad twice and I love their cuisine, the mixture of, of Chinese, East Indian, African peoples, and, and of course, Brits, too, um, is a fascinating place. And so that's my favorite one at the moment. As far as a sauce for food um, that's mixed in with the food, I have to say that red chili sauce from New Mexico would be my favorite of that uh-huh. kind. And, of course, of course, that comes in jars, too. <laughs> <laughs> can use as much as you want. Well, it's interesting yes. because even, and you mentioned um, Trin, the, the sauce from Trinidad. In the Caribbean, where peppers were, were wild originally, right? Um, right. Some of the, their... A lot of you go to individual restaurants and they start. It seems like they realize the craze and are cashing in on it, bottling their own sauce that a chef made in the kitchen. But a lot of these, I found, often have a sugar base. They're sweet. Yeah, they, some of them are sweet. Yes, a lot of them have a fruit base um, uh, or a vegetable base like carrots uh, that that go well with the habanero chilies and and that sort of thing. The the, the earliest habanero sauces had a um, a carrot base, but you can also use mango. You can use papaya. You can use tropical fruits of just about any kind for that particular uh, base. What you what you don't want is just pure chilies because these are very very hot chilies and you they'd be unpalatable. So with with a a base of a um, say a sympathetic uh, ingredient, sympathetic chili peppers in the sense it mixes well with them. Uh, the fruits and vegetables uh, form the basis of the sauce, and then the chilies are added uh, to establish whatever heat levels. And usually they're they're hot, but some are some are medium too. Yeah, um, and I, I just I I mean you know, of course I'm a, an easy target for those things, so I'll always bring a bottle home, and and a couple of them were so hot. I, I think there. I've had it for a couple of years now in the refrigerator with only about a quarter of the bottle gone. <laughs> that has happened to me, yes. <laughs> All right, indeed. Well, this has been truly um, an education in hot sauces. So the next time that waitress says, do you want some hot sauce with that, think about it. And you will <laughs> think about where those peppers come from. Dave DeWitt, thank you very much for sharing your information and your time with us on... It was, a wonder, it was wonderful talking to you. Great. On A Taste of the Past, and please... Join us again. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.